We are continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel according to John. I've titled the whole series, The Message Became Flesh. Let me get a sip real quick. It's kind of rough when you get a little too excited in practice and kind of shoot your voice before you've even started the service. Um, I think we made it okay. Let's see if I can preach. (laughs) Do any of you have a problem focusing on the wrong thing? Let me explain what I mean. Maybe you really like for your house to be clean. Maybe obsessed would be a better word. And uh, to the point that your grandchildren hate coming to visit because they, they seem to think that you love your house more than them. Maybe in relationships you're the kind of person that believes it's more important to win an argument than to guard unity. And maybe marriage struggles because of it. It, There's so many ways in which uh, we can take something that isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but if we focus on the wrong thing, sometimes we can miss out on something even more important, something even better than. And I think we're going to see in today's passage that nowhere is this more tragic than when we focus on the things of God in such a way that it actually keeps us from God himself. I've titled today's message, Abraham's Blessing. We're in John chapter 8, and you'll be happy to know we're finally finishing the chapter today. Let's begin in verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Of course, we're jumping into the middle of a conversation here. You might guess that from the context. Uh, But uh, we're actually, in this passage, concluding a, a discussion that has rambled on for three chapters on this final day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, And... Uh, What came immediately before this was Jesus pointing out that, yes, they wanted to claim this identity as children of Abraham. And because they they, they consider themselves the rightful spiritual inheritors of Abraham's uh, spiritual legacy, then they also want to claim that they are children of God. God is their father. And Jesus has pointed out to them that they are mistaken. That uh, the fact that when he speaks truth to them, they vehemently oppose him. The fact that when he calls them to faith, they try to deny that he is who he says he is. That in every point where he speaks truth to them, they fall back on the lies they would rather believe about themselves and about Jesus proves that they really are not the rightful inheritors of Abraham's spiritual blessing, that they are not actually children of God. But if they love lies more than truth, and they love them to the point that they are already scheming how they can use the law of Moses to orchestrate the death of Jesus, silence him once and for all, Jesus pointed out in the passage we looked at last week, you know who's been a liar and a murderer all along? 
the devil. And Jesus says, that's, that's your true father. That's the, the one whose will you are seeking to implement in your life and in your world. Now, <laughs> obviously when Jesus said that to them, they did not receive that well. And here we have their response. Aren't we right in saying that you're nothing but a Samaritan? We live in a day and age where racial slurs are not looked upon kindly. Uh, but uh, for a Jew in the first century in, in Judea to call someone a Samaritan was practically the worst thing you could call them. Because in the Jewish mindset, pagans were bad. They, were, they did all kinds of horrible things they were not supposed to do. And they worshipped idols and all these horrible things that God says very clearly we should not do. But pagans didn't know any better. They had never read the law of Moses. They had never heard that God doesn't want them doing these things. So you could, to some degree, excuse their act actions because of ignorance. But the Samaritans were part Jewish. This goes back 700 years to when Assyria conquered the northern tribes of Israel. And they uh, implemented an aggressive policy of deportation. They took a whole lot of Jews and spread them throughout the Fertile Crescent. Uh, and then all these other nations throughout the Fertile Crescent that they had conquered, they grabbed people from there and resettled them from all over the place in the territory of the northern tribes. And what they were trying to do was to disintegrate Jewish culture and identity. And in doing so, ensure that they could not form a coalition strong enough to rebel against them. That was their political strategy. But the result was that in the northern tribes, you ended up with a mixture of Jewish people who wanted to worship Yahweh and then other people who had their own gods that they had brought from wherever, and they just kind of mixed it all together. Now when we reach the first century, the, the people in the northern area, now called Samaria, they had decided that they were actually the, the just as legitimate uh, descendants of Abraham as the Jews themselves. And they had their own version of the law of Moses, the five books of Moses, that were somewhat modified to accommodate their, uh, their interests and some of their more pagan uh, influences. Uh, but they, they claimed that they too were children of Abraham and they had their own, they had built their own rival temple, although the Jews had only recently, a few decades back, torn it down. But this is the background of the discussion of Jesus with the Samaritan woman by the well of Sychar, uh, this rivalry. Well, for a Jew, a Samaritan represented not just somebody who didn't know any better, but somebody who was a descendant of Abraham who had contaminated himself by mixing himself with foreign nations and foreign cultures and had perverted the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses, and twisted it so that it was an obscene and horrible thing. And they could not say nasty enough things about Samaritans. To them, they were the worst of the worst. 
In fact, we get the idea when they specify kind of the intent of their uh, suggestion. When they say, you're a Samaritan, let me explain what I mean by that. You've got a demon. You are under the influence of some demonic force. We're not the liars, you're the liar. We're not the children of the devil, you are. They hold fast to the identity that they have tried to create for themselves. They want to say that they're okay. They are religious. They've done the right thing. They have kept the law of Moses and they have built their whole lives around this. And for Jesus to show up and say, you don't know anything about the God you claim to belong to. They took great offense to that and they rejected Jesus. Now, what to say about Jesus? Even though he has just said to them, you are children of the devil, he also repeats to them the invitation. If you abide in my word, if you're my disciple, I will set you free. You will live forever. So in pointing this out, Jesus is not just saying, you're the worst of the worst. I want nothing to do with you and God doesn't either because you don't deserve his attention. Jesus is not saying that. He is saying you have got a profound problem that goes to the core of who you are. And you need a savior. Guess what? I'm here to do just that. But you've got to admit you've got a problem before I can fix anything. So Jesus is not rejecting them. He's actually offering them the opportunity to become the real thing, not the thing they're trying to tell themselves they are. They would like this identity as children of God. But it's false. Jesus is actually offering them the option to become what they claim they'd like to be. But they prefer their lies to the truth. They hold on tenaciously. I have a question from this verse. After Jesus pointed out that their desires were more in line with the devil than with God, the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of being a demoniac. How does hatred towards Jesus prove the point that we have a problem? Let's keep on in verse 49. Jesus answered, I have no demon. But I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I am not seeking my glory. There is one who is seeking and judging. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone should keep my word, he would never, ever see death forevermore. Jesus responds, simply saying, you're wrong. I have no demon. There's nothing about me that has anything to do with Satan or with demons or with anything but exactly what the Father wants. In fact, I honor my Father. Everything I do. I'm not here seeking uh, glory for myself. In everything I do, I've been very clear that I, only, I can only speak the words of the one who sent me, the words the Father gave me to speak. If you're impressed by my teaching, it's because I am sharing with you the words of the Father. The only reason I can heal and raise the dead and do the things I've been doing is that the Father has seen fit to enable me to do this. Now, I don't mean to suggest that Jesus was not fully God. 
But there's something of a mystery in the incarnation. When Jesus took on flesh, we are told in the New Testament that he emptied himself. And Jesus had to pray like we do. And he had to listen to what the Father had to tell him. So in some sense, in the years of his earthly life, Jesus accepted the limitations of human existence. I think at any moment, he could have reclaimed his full divine prerogatives. But he set them aside willingly so that he could do nothing on earth without utter dependence on the Father, the way any of us would have to live a human life. So every glorious thing that Jesus was accomplishing in his ministry, he is saying this is only happening because the Father is the one doing it. The Father is the one enabling me. And he's the one who's going to take care of my glory. We see this in Jesus. Every time people tried to make a big deal out of him, when they wanted to take him and make him a king, he left. He said, no thanks. And he was constantly saying the kinds of things that people took offense at. He's already had a moment where a whole bunch of people said, this is too much. I can't follow Jesus anymore. And a whole bunch of them left. And he was left again with a handful. Because he wasn't trying to make some kind of a name for himself. He wasn't a glory hound. The father, however is the one at work drawing people to Jesus in faith because in the glory of Christ, people are drawn to the Savior that can rescue them. So the Father is at work drawing people to Jesus. But Jesus didn't come here and live his life on earth uh, as, as a person trying to make a name for himself. He did the exact opposite of that. And Jesus reminds them not only that the Father is the one concerned with his glory, but that the Father is judging. What you do with the one the Father sent to convey the supreme message of God Almighty to you, what you do with that, the Father is going to judge you for how you responded. Jesus is about to say something really important here. Truly, truly, I say to you. He prefaces very important statements with that. This is the honest to God's truth. This is the absolute truth of the matter. This is something very important. If anyone should keep my word, he would never, ever see death forevermore. These guys have just told Jesus, you're nothing but a demoniac. And yet again, he comes back with, if you'll just keep my word, I'll give you life forever. Can't we see how obvious it is that this is the character of the God who revealed himself to the Israelites? The God who is abounding in mercy who shows mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him. Slow to anger. Jesus could have said, oh, I have a demon? You bunch of demoniacs yourselves. I want nothing to do with you. I wash my hands of the whole deal. But he keeps coming back and saying, just let it go. Just reach out and take what I am offering you. 
Receive life. Give up the lies. God's grace, God's kindness could not be more obvious. They do not receive what Jesus is offering. Verse 52, therefore the Jews said to him, now we have known that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets and you say, if anyone should keep my word, he would never ever taste death forevermore. You're not greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died. Who are you making yourself out to be? They redouble their efforts to hold on to their lies. Ah, we got you now. And this has been the tenor of the whole three chapters long argument. Every time Jesus says something, they think, Ah, we found a way to twist an argument to dismiss you and be done with you. You can't be speaking the truth. You have to be uh, a demon sent to, uh, demonized, sent to deceive us because Abraham and the prophets all died. And these are the great heroes of faith from times past. Abraham, the father of the faith. Surely these figures are people who were doing the father's will. They all died. What do you mean if somebody keeps your word? They're never ever going to taste death forevermore. Are you saying you're greater than our ancestor Abraham? He died. The prophets died. Are you greater than all of them put together? Just who do you mean to tell us you are? What are you saying? And they're challenging Jesus to just come out and say it, and he will. By the time we're done with this conversation, we're going to have recorded the most explicit statement Jesus made that we have recorded in the New Testament about his identity as the great I am. He's been saying it in, in less obvious ways throughout this conversation, but it's going to come to a point. So often that's the approach, right? Jesus confronts us with our problem, offers the solution, but we don't want that solution. We want to tell ourselves we don't have a problem. I don't need saving. Have you ever heard people laugh about it? Oh, I need to be saved. And people joke about it because they're so utterly convinced that they're fine. They're okay. There's nothing about them that needs saving. Wouldn't that be wonderful if it were true? If you were truly good and right and worthy of eternal living? Well, that's what Jesus is offering. He can make your claim a reality. Why would you hold on to the lie when you have the option of actually experiencing the real thing? I have a question from these verses. Even after the Jewish leadership has accused him of being demoniac, or being demonic, I'm sorry, Jesus still offers them life eternal if they will keep his word. How have you experienced the unexpected generosity of God in your life? 
Let's keep reading verse 54. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. My Father is the one glorifying me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not known him. But I have known him. And if I should say that I have not known him, I will be like you, a liar. But I have known him. And I keep his word. Your ancestor Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day. He saw and rejoiced. Jesus repeats again. I'm not trying to seek my own glory. And if that were what I'm about, it would be legitimate for you to dismiss me. My Father is the one glorifying me. Every word I speak that impresses you, every miraculous deed I perform, I am actually doing what the Father is enabling me and guiding me and instructing me to do and say. This Father who is doing all of this in me is the Father you claim as your God. You say He's our God. Here's your problem. You don't even know Him. The world is filled with people who have opinions about God. I think the only people whose opinions really matter much are people who actually know Him. Jesus says, I know Him. In fact, I I couldn't know Him any better than I do because I share in the Godhead. I know him with the intimacy that only the eternal son has of the eternal father. I know everything that could be known about the father. If you want me to say I don't know him, I'd be just like what you are right now. I'd be a liar too. I'm not going to lie. I've known him all along and I keep his word. Now this question about Abraham and him dying and are you greater than Abraham? You know what? Abraham saw my day coming. And when he saw it, he rejoiced. What does that mean? Well, God made three enormous promises to Abraham. And really, the first two are all about how God's going about doing the third. The third is the really important promise. The first promise God made to Abraham was that he would give him land. He would give him a place to settle and establish himself. The second promise God made to Abraham was that he would greatly multiply his descendants and they would become a nation. And this would become a nation of people that God would use to bring uh, about a tremendous plan he had. The third and most important promise God made to Abraham was that one of his descendants, he would have a descendant, singular, through whom he would bring blessing to every nation on the face of the earth. All the families of earth would find their blessing in this descendant of Abraham. Now Abraham, we know, was not a perfect man, but there was one thing he seemed to always do right. When God said stuff, he believed it. He had faith in God. He trusted 
God. So when God told him this was going to happen with the eyes of faith, Abraham saw as accomplished what was at this point a promise. Because he knew just how faithful God is. If God says it's going to happen, it is done. And through the eyes of faith, he saw the day of Jesus, the day in which that descendant would be here on this earth. And the blessings of God to every nation on earth would be a reality. He saw that day and he rejoiced at the very thought of it. That's the tremendous irony, isn't it? These men who have made Abraham their identity. You know what Abraham would have given to see this day in his own flesh? To stand before that person who would bring to fruition the promises of God to him. Of blessing the whole earth. And they get to be there when it's happening. They get to witness it firsthand. That descendant stands before him the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. And they want none of it. And they claim to be defending the whole patrimony, the spiritual heritage of Abraham in the process of denying the very purpose of the calling of Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. I have a question from these verses. Jesus points out that Abraham looked forward to his day with rejoicing as it would mark the fulfillment of God's promises of blessing for all the earth. What are the Jewish leaders focusing on that prevents them from sharing in that joy? Let's finish. Verse 57. Therefore the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden and went out from the temple. Again, the Jews are skeptical. Ah, you're not even 50. Of course, Jesus is at most maybe 35, mid-30s at this point. So clearly he's not 50 years old. Maybe they're throwing that out. That's kind of retirement age if you were serving at the temple according to the law of Moses. Also in some positions of leadership, uh, it was a required minimum age in Jewish life. So maybe they're saying, you're not wise enough. You're not old enough to claim the wisdom necessary uh, to, to talk about these things. Or... Even if he had been 50 years old, there's no way he could have seen Abraham. This, we're talking about 2,000 years of separation. How would you know what Abraham thought? Were you there? Did you see him? And basically Jesus says, uh, yeah, I was there. This is eyewitness testimony you're getting. Again, he prefaces this with that warning, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, what I'm about to say is an important thing. Write it down. Underline it. This is a big deal. Before Abraham was, I am. 
Not I was. He could have said I was, just to say I'm older than Abraham. But he uses this eternal present that God likes to use. And in the Greek here, ego I me, I've talked about that before. Uh, he uses that phrase again, that if we read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, that's the same phrase used in a whole bunch of passages where God is talking about himself. And maybe one of the key passages, when Moses is called to go to I the Israelites and uh, deliver them from slavery, uh, he says, God, who am I supposed to tell them is sending me? And God says to him, tell them that I am that I am is sending you. Tell, you. tell them that I am sent you. In the Greek, ego, I me. When God says I am, in this sense of the eternal present, what he is saying is I exist, period. Everything else, you have to add something after the I am. I am right now. Check back 100 years from now, and I probably won't be here. I am for a little bit of time. I am so long as. Our I ams are all contingent. But God alone can say, I am, full stop, period. Because his existence, his existence does not depend on anything. Creation itself, the universe, space, and time could collapse and disappear. And God would still be able to say, I am. Jesus is claiming that he is Yahweh. He is the great I am. The only non-contingent being that exists. Before Abraham was, I am. They understood what he was saying saying because they tried to grab stones to throw him. That was in Leviticus. Uh, that was the penalty for blasphemy. It was a communal execution by stoning. And in that way, Israel made it clear that they as a people did not tolerate blasphemy. So uh, they grabbed stones to go through uh, killing a, another blasphemer. If he had just claimed to be the Messiah, that would not be a stonable offense. But to claim to be God Almighty, to claim to be Yahweh himself, whose name the Jews had stopped speaking out of fear of misusing it. They considered that blasphemy. As we've seen repeated over and over in John's gospel, the moment for his crucifixion has not arrived and therefore Jesus was hidden. John doesn't explain what in the world he means by that. I don't know if he disappeared I don't know if he gave them, uh, turned around a corner and lost them. I don't know what happened, but uh, the fact that he uses the passive there, he was hidden, kind of seems to indicate that it was something miraculous the Father did. He was hidden, and he made it out of the temple unscathed because it was not yet time. I have a final question. This discussion concludes with Jesus making the clearest affirmation of who he is, the great I am. Why must we accept this about Jesus in order to be right with God? I 
I started out talking about focusing on the wrong things. Sometimes we do. In this long, rambling argument between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, we see just that. People who have made God the center of their lives. They've focused on the promises God made to great men of the past like Abraham. They've focused on the law God gave through Moses. They have tried in all they do to prove that they are the legitimate spiritual successors of Abraham and therefore the only people on earth who can describe themselves as the children of God. You would think then when God showed up in the flesh to offer them eternal life, they would have been overjoyed. But they weren't. The, the great tragedy of religion is that we can get so caught up in the trappings of religiosity that we never turn to the God who is trying to get through to us. We can get so caught up in creating this identity as better than thou people by all the things we're doing and all the uh, rituals we're keeping and all the rules we're following and think that that equates to knowing God, to being of God. And what God calls us to do is to recognize that we are broken and need a Savior and turn to Him in simple faith. Jesus over and over in this long conversation kept saying, just come to me, just stay in my word. Let me open you up to truth. Let me free you. Let me release you from sin and let me give you life everlasting. Just let me do this for you. Because you cannot. You never will. I guess the question to each of us is what have we done with Jesus' offer? And have we too gotten caught up in focusing on things other than God himself? Let me say a word of prayer. Dear God, thank you for loving us, for coming to us. Despite our sin, despite our utter lostness, that you would come and repeatedly, time and time again, extend to us the offer of life. Help us to turn to you, to give up on our own lies and embrace the truth that we can only find in you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.